Welcome, listeners, to a new episode of the Case Podcast, the, a new conversation about software engineering. My guest today, I'm very happy to say, is Steve Vinoski. Hi, Steve. Hello. Um, Steve is someone I've admired for a long, long time, and I've known him for a long time. Um, I'm really happy to have him on the show, and our topic today is going to be things a mentor can tell their mentee. Um, Steve, great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Steve, Please introduce yourself first. Sure. Uh, so I work for a company called Arista Networks, but I've got a fairly long history of uh, being in software and even hardware development, um, I guess about 34 years or so. Uh, I started working at Texas Instruments in the mid-80s, uh, working on hardware, working on chips, and they needed someone to write tests for one of the chips that I was working on. And they pointed to me because I was the youngest person on the team. And I didn't know much about software. So I started studying it and I found that it was pretty cool. So uh, I taught myself a few languages. Um, as I learned more and more, I just kept moving farther away from hardware and uh, more into software. So I, I went to Apollo Computer in the Boston area. Uh, in 1987, started using C++, um, worked in a group that did kind of half hardware, half software for a few years, and then came CORBA, Common Object mm. Request Broker Architecture. <laughs> there was a team in um, Apollo, what, what was then uh, Hewlett-Packard, because in 1989, HP bought Apollo. There was a team that was working on one of the first object request brokers, and I was looking around the company for anybody using C++, and that team was using C++. So I joined that team, not because of Corva, but because of C++. And um, I spent quite a bit of time working with Corva, working on the object management group standards, um, working in teams and leading teams that developed object request brokers, both for Hewlett-Packard and then later for Iona Technologies, which was uh, one of the most successful Irish software companies in history. Um, along the way, I kind of learned a lot more about distributed systems, which is a lifelong thing. You can never learn everything about distributed systems. So that kept me quite busy, still does in some ways. Um, then, let's see, I kind of... Uh, was looking at uh, web development technologies as the web got uh, stronger and more powerful and more popular and everything. So looking at the web and found uh, Roy Fielding's thesis on REST, uh, started looking at that and kind of said, wow, that's, that's different than what Corva um, preaches. And I could see you know a lot of ways that it made a big difference, especially for large-scale systems like the web. And so... Worked with REST for quite a while. Um, in 2006 or so, I found the Erlang programming language and saw that it had a lot of things built into it that we had spent, you know, quite a bit of effort developing in C++. You know, it was already there in Erlang. So I started working with Erlang, worked for a couple companies, including Basho Technologies, the makers of Reoc, who used Erlang. And... Um, then about three and a half years ago, switched gears again, joined Arista Networks. They make um, 
network switches and primarily target the uh, data center and uh, cloud technologies, cloud systems. And uh, interesting thing about Arista is they have uh, a mentoring program. Every engineer, doesn't matter how many years of experience they have, when they join, they get a mentor for three months and they're under the guide, the guidance of that mentor. And uh, the whole idea there is that we have, you know, as any company does, have our particular engineering process. We have lots of tools that we both, you know, get from outside or develop ourselves. We have processes in place for all kinds of different things that we have to do. And rather than just kind of casting someone into the mix and saying, figure it out, we take the time for uh, a mentor to teach the person uh, where to look, who to talk to, what to do, um, all that kind of stuff. And it, it really saves time in the end because, you know, it prevents kind of uh, questionable practices from creeping in and it just gives that person kind of a, um, a comfortable feeling when they're coming to work those initial days. They know who to turn to when they have questions. Anyway, that's, uh, that's who I am. Great. So when we, when we started out planning for, for this, this uh, conversation, we actually, or I actually wanted to talk about distributed systems for a while, but you said, ah, we've done that. <laughs> and I said, okay, yeah. let's, let's think about other interesting things to talk about. And then we, I finally noticed that a very interesting thing would be to draw from your experience of 30 plus years and talk to you about this mentoring thing and about the kinds of things that um, you'd be able to share with somebody who's starting out their career as an engineer. So um, that's going to be what we're what we're talking about, and maybe we can start with um, uh, one of the things that people, I think, including myself, fall victim to, or I used to when I was younger a long time ago, um, which is to um, be unable to decide what is an overhyped fad and what is something that's really worth learning. So how do you how do you make that decision? That's a that's a good question and a hard question. Uh, I think everyone, uh, you said you did, I certainly did, has experienced the, the case where you see something that's hyped and you take a look at it and it looks like, hey, this, this looks great. I'm going to jump on board and, you know, drink the Kool-Aid and, and uh, this is going to solve all my problems. And as you know, it's not always the case. Um, I guess one way, well, I guess there are a couple ways to do it. You could be an early adopter or a late adopter, <laughs> right? If you're an early adopter, you jump in and I think you can get in and start seeing the thing for what it is. You know, you have to, you have to grab it and try to act, make actual use of it. Um, it's kind of like, you know, programming languages. You can look at them. You can say, oh, this looks like this one I know. I kind of know it because of that. But you don't really learn a programming language until you actually use it for real development, not just an example, you know, something that solves an actual problem you have. And that's, I think, can be applied more broadly to, you know, any new technology. If you see something that's hyped and it's saying, you know, people are saying that it's going to solve a particular 
problem or class of problems, try it, right? Um, jump in on the, uh, the early train and give it a try. You might find that, yeah, there's some promise there, but it's got a lot of things missing. And um, if you're early enough and uh, if you want to put in the time, you might be able to actually influence the technology to go the way you want it to by not only being an adopter, but but joining in with the development of the system if it's uh, if that's allowed. So many systems today are open source, so that's generally possible. Um, so that's one way to do it. Of course, being a late adopter means kind of being skeptical and saying, nope, I don't believe a word of it, and I'm not going to even try it until everyone's proven it, and it's... Um, you know, it's already solved a number of problems that people have that are like the ones I have, and then I will make use of it. Um, I think what's interesting about those two positions is it kind of goes back to one of my favorite topics, which is the innovator's dilemma and um, the adoption of technology. So if you look at the work of Clayton Christensen and others who I've also worked on this area. You have this kind of bell curve, which is uh, early adopters jumping in and finding that this new technology doesn't quite do what they want, but it's good enough and it's better than what came before. And they kind of coax it along and get it from good enough to better. And then more people see that it's better and they jump in and they kind of help push it even farther and better. And it it reaches a peak where kind of um, um, the average developer, say, has adopted it, and then it starts to decline somewhat. And that's when the skeptics start to, start to adopt it and late adopters then pick it up because by then it's proven itself and it's, it's uh, slowed down its rate of change. Some people fear change, so they tend to... Uh, wait until the rate of change has slowed and that's what happens as technology kind of wanes and then the late adopters pick it up i would guess that probably in your in your youth you were definitely somebody to adopt things early right which is why you ended up using c and corbar at a time when that those were very new things still uh right? yeah i would say that's true One of, so has that changed over the course of your career? Have you become more skeptical and more and more skeptical? Um, hmm. I wouldn't call it skeptical. I, I, I think it's more practical. <laughs> um, as you know, you tend to see cycles and things, and you see similar things happen over and over again. And so it's almost like being on you know Groundhog Day or whatever, where you see a technology and say, oh, that's a lot like this thing that happened a few years ago. And, eh, you know, I don't, I'll take a look, but it's probably not any different than that thing. And that thing had the following problems and that's why I didn't use it. And, you know, so um, we do have cycles like that. And sure, each, each iteration does have some improvement, but it's really about, um, you know, is it good enough to to make you want to switch to it. I think also as you have more experience, you do become kind of comfortable with the tools you have and tend to lean on them more. You know, it takes, takes a little bit more to get you to, to switch. So 
maybe there is a bit of skepticism involved in that. Actually, one of the things that I remember is, um, I don't know which year it was, but we did an interview at a conference, I think it was QCon San Francisco, mm-hmm. a long time ago, it must have been about a decade ago. And um, that was when you first uh, talked to me about um, your newfound love of Erlang. Yeah. And I actually found that quite amazing that you said something that you said 10 minutes ago that um, you noticed that a lot of the things that you had tried to solve or that had taken you a lot of effort to solve using C++ and the Corba ecosystem were actually a lot easier with Erlang. Was that a hard thing to do? Because it was sort of, it sounded to me like, you know, you you were this absolute expert in this Corba thing. And then you sort of said, well, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> uh, is it a hard thing? I don't think it's a hard thing. I think everyone has to look at what they've kind of worked on. And, and you have to know that it's not going to last forever. And, you know, there's a, there's a saying in business that... If you really want to succeed, you kind of put yourself out of business before somebody else does. And I think you can apply that to what we work on as well. That, um, you know, if you want to just get stuck with a technology and ride it out, you could certainly do that. I mean, there's been technologies that have lasted for decades and decades and people have stuck with them. And, you know, there's a lot of C++ gurus that were C++ gurus Back when I started looking at C++ 30 years ago, right? And they're still considered gurus today. So they've rode that along and that's done, they've done well with it. But I think um, it's usually better to kind of look at things. And like I said earlier, you want to look at new things that come along. Don't shield yourself from them, but, you know, honestly evaluate them. If you're truly an expert in something like Corba, that means not only know what it's good at you know what it's bad at right so um looking at things like erlang looking at uh what it's got in it how it works what are the underlying architectural principles how do those differ from Corba or uh you know other languages um i think you have to be able to do that if you're truly an expert and if something's better Hey, it's better. I mean, there's no pre- no point in pretending it's not. Um, so okay, you know. <laughs> okay. So um, related to that, um, have you seen people um, become a victim of vendor marketing? And if so, what's your advice against that? Yeah, I mean, we've we've all seen that. I think uh, that's a tough one. Vendor marketing, you know, can can certainly oversell things. Um, I always wonder what the programming language world would be like today if Sun hadn't massively pushed Java 20 years ago, 25 years ago, whatever it was. Um, I think it would be a lot different. You know, I think for a long time, Java kind of put a almost a, a clamp on language development, language innovation. Um, so many people flock to it. And I think that's another example of where people have been able to just kind of adopt a technology, sit on it for decades and ride it out, and it's done well for them. Um, but would it have succeeded like it did if 
Sun hadn't had such a massive investment from a marketing perspective. Who knows? Um, Corva, kind of the same thing. Object management group was a or is a group composed of you know hundreds of companies. Um, all all of those companies kind of pushing things like Corva and the services around it and the products that came from it. Um, was it good? Yeah, it was good for some things. Maybe not so good for other things. Uh, I think it really does come back to that kind of you know pilot program notion that I mentioned earlier. You've got to use it. You've got to try it. The, the marketing stuff is what it is. Of course, they're going to spin it a certain way. They're going to have examples that work well for, for the spin they're putting on it. But does that mean it's going to work well for you? You don't know until you absolutely you know sit down with it, work through it. Um, you have to compare it against other things, whether they're popular or not. Um, that's really the only way to get around it. Uh, you do get to the point where you start to recognize vendor kind of selling, overselling, if you want to call it that, just uh, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, it does kind of wear you down and make you think, well, if it's really, you know, if they're willing to put that much time into it, it must be worth my time as well. And you tend to jump on, but um, at the end of the day, you just have to resist <laughs> and give it a try for yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So let's get away from 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 products and and hype driven things. What are some of the what are the, what are in your view some of the foundational things that people should should look at? What's a sort of a prerequisite for having a for being a good engineer? Uh, interesting question. I think there are technical and non technical aspects. One thing I would say all the the kind of good engineers I can remember working with always had a curiosity. They weren't satisfied with what they had. Not, not in the sense that they wanted to throw everything away and start over, but in the sense of knowing that something could be improved, even a small improvement. Always looking for ways to, to make their systems better. Um, what goes along with that is study there's like a constant learning that has to happen and it's you know some people say well the company should be training you and stuff like that and i think that's a different issue it's really about um kind of your curiosity and what technical things interest you they're not always the same as what the company who pays you uh are interested in right so finding papers finding books finding uh, articles that describe certain issues, uh, tear them down, you know, kind of come to conclusions about what works well with that approach, what doesn't, comparisons against similar approaches. Those are always good things to read for an engineer. And so I think today, you know, I mean, back when I started, I remember having to go to the library at Apollo Computer and look for papers in these big binders and stuff. And if I couldn't find it, I'd have to ask the librarian and they'd say, well, we don't have that, but maybe I could request it from another library. And, you know, it would take 
days or weeks to to get things. And of course, today we just search it, find it, read it. Um, so given the technology we have today, there's really no excuse for not keeping up with things, not keeping up with your interests and your curiosity. And, you know, um, I know, Stefan, that you like similar music to the music I like. And, you know, you have this way of finding bands, right? You listen to a band mm -hmm. and then you look at all the members of the band and say, who, who played drums, who played bass? And you kind of go and say, do they have any solo work? Do they have work with other bands? And you find other bands or other solo artists that way. And um, of course, you also have music recommendation technology and stuff like that today that helps. But you can do that with papers too. You look at the authors of a paper and say, what other things did they do? And search their name and search for the topic. And you generally will find things, not only things that you know about, but things that you probably didn't know about that uh, might even be more interesting than what you think you're interested in. So mm -hmm. I'd say that's, that's something that's fairly fundamental to the work we do. Mm -hmm. What else? Um, you know, there's, there's this thing as a non-technical issue. You have to be able to work with people. You know, you, if you're going to be a lone developer and kind of have your own business and write all the code yourself and do all the testing and, you know, that's, that's doable, but very, very rarely. Generally, you have to be able to work with people, communicate with people, um, be able to take other people's point of points of view, be able to put aside your own, um, you know, you might have strong feelings about a particular approach or technology, but you have to kind of set that aside, listen to the counter arguments for different approaches or different technologies, and, you know, kind of separate the emotional binding that you might have to something from the technical side and, you know, got to get along. And I think that's an important aspect as well. Mm-hmm. So how much do you think, um, as an engineer, you have to uh, look at the other um, surrounding aspects and disciplines than in your, in your company or a context, like maybe the economic side of things, the business side of things, or maybe politics these days? How much do you have to be aware of those things? Oh, that's, that's a tough one. Um, I think, well, it fits with what I just said in some ways, you know, that's kind of the people side of things. You have to be able to, to be able to participate in that. I think, um, looking at the business is important. You know, if you're, I've certainly been in places where the project is cruising along and you think you're on top of the world and all of a sudden the business decides that that's not something that they want to be involved with anymore or, They have to make cuts and that's kind of below the bar or, you know, whatever it is. And um, if you're able to keep up, at, you know, with your own business, maybe not the entire ecosystem that your employer is in, but at least your own employer's business, keep up with what they're looking at, keep, keep up with their direction. Those kinds of things will be less uh, likely to bite you. Um At the flip side, if, if you're working on something that's, you know, very, very important to the business, it's good to know that as well. And 
have a some kind of contact with customers, knowing what customers want, being able to provide what they want. Um, that's critical, of course, because if you're if you're just developing stuff that you want, it may not be what the customer wants and might drive the system in a direction that's undesirable. Um, in terms of politics, uh, a lot of companies do have a lot of internal politics. Uh, that's for sure. And I've generally found it's better to stay out of those because you tend to wind up either in a place you don't want to be or getting burned somehow. So uh, it's sometimes hard to stay out of because if you feel strongly about a particular direction or a particular product, you want to jump in the fray and defend it and help you know push it. You're going to get involved in politics. That's just human nature. It's where there are people, there's politics. But uh, you know, it comes back to being honest, being open, trying to again uh, be open to evaluating different ideas, different approaches, um, different viewpoints. I think that helps not only you, but it helps uh, the people around you see that uh, you're a person to be respected and a person who's thoughtful enough to have considered, you know, many viewpoints. Um, and, you know, I think that gets you to a position where people start to seek your advice. And then you do have more influence uh, than you might otherwise, you know, if you're always shutting down others' ideas or just ignoring them or saying my way is the only way, then that's going to bite you too. You're going to get isolated and uh, you're going to find that you have less influence than you might otherwise wish or um, might otherwise have. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been in an ethical dilemma? And if so, what's your advice on, on those kinds of things where you're maybe somebody wants you to do something that you really, really feel bad about? Yes. Uh, for me, and I know this is important to you as well, software patents. Uh, I've worked in a number of places that have patented software. I've been pushed, uh, because in the past I've been a technical vice president, I've been a chief architect, senior architect. You know, when you're in those positions, this idea of patenting does come along. You know, people want to mm -hmm. protect the company's assets and IP and everything. So you get in this situation where you're kind of forced to look at the technologies you have and see if there's anything patentable. And I fundamentally don't believe in software patents. So it's kind of like, well, what do I do? So um, in those cases, I either, if I could, I would decline to participate and just say this isn't I don't believe in this and I don't think it's right and I've managed to do that a few times in other cases I was still kind of asked to put together a list of things that might be patentable and then they would just go find somebody else to evaluate them I knew of one case where um, there was some technology where I knew of prior art And I showed the lawyers the prior, prior art written in published papers. And they just said, oh, that doesn't matter. We could still get a patent. And somehow they did. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So in that case, I felt like I did 
kind of everything I could to uh, do the right thing, but the wrong thing still happened. Mm-hmm. I think you just have to um, kind of stick to what you know to be right. And uh, sometimes I've even looked at um, the ethics uh, that have been written up by groups like the ACM or the IEEE. I'm a member mm-hmm. of both of those groups. And I've actually at times gone through and read through those things where I was stuck in some ethical dilemma. And I find them helpful. You know, they, they do provide general guidance. You might also, mm-hmm. you know, find, find a more experienced person than yourself and ask for their advice if you're kind of stuck in those situations. Hopefully, not too many people get stuck in those, though. <laughs> okay. So let's get a bit back to um, the, the mentoring thing of the career path. Um, something that people might ask is, um, is it a good idea to stick to coding throughout your career? Or should you try to um, transcend that as early as possible and do something else, whatever that is, architecture or management or something that, may not be as much related as coding as when you start out. Well, uh, I've always wanted to be coding and I still do. I found that even those times when I had those lofty positions of <laughs> technical VP or, or our chief architect, I was not effective unless I was coding at the same time. The reason for that is at the end of the day, the code is the truth. It's what the system is. It uh, defines everything the system does. And you can have all the kind of diagrams about what the system is or slides or white papers or uh, whatever that somehow are alternative descriptions of the system. But the code is what the system is. So if you don't know the code, then you don't truly know the system. Um, I'd say for me, it kind of boils down to two choices. You're either going to stay on the technical side or move into management. Some people like managing people. There's lots of challenges with that. And that's certainly, um, you know, if you're good at that, that's, that's to be commended. And if that interests you, then yeah, you should, you should go that way. You should also know that if you think you're going to be a people manager and also write lots of code, it's probably not going to happen. I know of people who have done it and I can count them on one hand, literally over all these years. So it's kind of rare. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to be a manager, then yes, keep coding, always keep coding. (laughs) And that's what I've done. Hmm. Okay. Um, you've worked at a number of different companies in your career. Um, what was the most fun? Was it small companies or big companies? Was it while you were maybe in consulting or product development or project, doing project work? Was it maintenance or greenfield development? Or what were the most interesting times in your career? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, I think the most fun times I've had is just working with people that I like being around people with, um, you know, certain talents in the technical arena, but also, you know, they're, they're interesting 
people as well. Uh, I've been uh, fortunate to have met quite a few characters along the way and have had some very good times. Um, I've met very, very few people that I wish I hadn't met, <laughs> you know, like fewer than five, I would say. So that's been good. Um, I think the just to try to isolate it down to like greenfield versus maintenance or small versus big. Um, I don't enjoy big companies when, let's see. So Apollo had a few thousand people and then HP bought them. And of course, HP then was pretty big and just kept getting bigger and bigger. HP back then, that was like 28 years ago or something. Uh, back then they were, still on top of things. Dave and Bill were still around and had influence on the company. And the, the thing that made HP great was still part of HP, the HP way. You've probably heard of that. So mm -hmm. it was an interesting place to work as a big company. But then that started to wane and fade away. And um, it became this kind of I don't know. It was like a collection of smaller companies all competing with each other within a big company. It was hard to get anything done. And you saw these kind of middle managers trying to build empires and battling with each other as if they were separate companies, you know, competing with each other. That got to be a drag. So once I left there, I just said, you know, I'm, I don't think I'll ever go back to a big company. And uh, never did. Um, I think working at smaller companies is better. You get to know the people who are there. You get to have better visibility, not only into the system you're building or systems you're building, but who works on what, what their strengths are, um, how they can be applied. You know, different people can apply their talents to different areas. You get to kind of see the business side as well. Maybe be directly in touch with customers, be on sales calls, uh, be on support calls, you know, where the customer is quite angry with you and you have to figure out what the problem is and fix it. That's always a good thing to experience, as painful as it might be. So I tend to like companies where, where you have the ability to see across the business, not only engineering, but business as well. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of new development versus maintenance, this might sound crazy, but I think it takes a better engineer to be a maintenance developer than it does to be someone cranking out new code. Mm -hmm. How so? Um, I think when you have something that's there in front of you, it has a certain structure. You have to be able to kind of respect that structure and fit whatever it is you're doing into that structure. Now, sure, you could change the structure and maybe tweak it a bit, but uh, you're kind of like taking something that's working and leaving it in a better place. When you have new development, you're kind of just, I think you're cranking stuff out and it's got a lot of holes in it. You might think it's like the best thing you ever wrote, but it's going to have holes in it, it's going to have bugs in it, it's going to have uh, sometimes holes big enough to, to drive trains through or whatever, and you're going to be kind of oblivious to it. Um, 
what really the the mentality I really don't like kind of related to that is I'm going to write all this new code and then it's going to be someone else's problem to fix. Uh, that's very bad. Don't do that. <laughs> um, the company I's, that I've worked for that have been the most successful uh, in terms of what they've produced and in terms of keeping people there and keeping people interested in what they're doing are companies where engineers develop code and they maintain that code. They write tests for that code. And that doesn't mean you can't move on to different things that you're always stuck with your own code and the, you know, that everything you've written in the past, that's not true. What I'm really talking about is kind of a life cycle and, uh, you know, write it, test it, maintain it, fix it. And fortunately today that the notion of continuous integration, continuous development is fairly widespread. And I think that that approach uh, uses this, this uh, kind of life cycle thing I'm talking about. So it's not foreign to a lot of developers today, which is good, but it's uh, certainly something I've seen in the past that is to be avoided. But um, I'd say most of what developers work on uh, the majority tends to be more maintenance-related than new code development. That's why mm -hmm. it's good to be strong in that area. Okay. So from the mentoring side of things, as well as from imagining you're just a regular coworker, um, how do you deal with um, that young, um, talented, ambitious but still pretty clueless colleague who just doesn't know that he or she doesn't know everything. On the contrary, they actually believe they do know everything. How do you, <laughs> how do you actually help them to, to appreciate things and actually become better at, at their job? Uh, well, I'd say one thing that, that we try to do, you know, like where I currently work, we have a way of hiring that I think, doesn't always uh, bring in people that are so um, blind to themselves, shall we say. So that's good. So uh, we do get people who kind of have that curiosity I mentioned earlier that uh, aren't afraid to work on fixing bugs instead of writing new code that kind of have a more rounded uh, approach to things. So I think I'm fortunate in that regard. That doesn't mean that they're Uh, they don't need mentoring and they can't learn or anything like that. That's definitely not true. And I'd say that's definitely not true of anybody. Um, but I think the main approach is to really focus on that whole notion of, of life cycle. You know, if they write some bug fix, review it, you know, take a look at it. Um, where I work now, all code is reviewed. Uh, we, You know, it goes up in a browser and you can look at it and you can comment on individual lines, just like um, things you can do at GitHub, very similar to that. You can put comments in, you can raise issues, you can, you know, actually block the thing from getting merged if, if it came to that. Fortunately, it doesn't really ever come to that. But um, the main thing is to kind of ask questions about, you know, you did this, but have you considered the following issues? And it requires you as a mentor to have kind of a bigger picture in mind. They might be thinking of, you know, the, the very particular fix they're putting in or the very particular change they're putting in 
but they're going to be um, effects of, of whatever it is they're doing. You know, maybe they change the API to some class or something, and it might affect systems in other areas that they didn't know existed. So you have to be able to point things like that out. They might be using the language, programming language, in a certain way that isn't idiomatic, that maybe there are better ways of doing it that are more normally done with that language. You know, so things like that have to be pointed out. Um, you have to evaluate the change to make sure that it's doing what the customer needs it to do, that it fits with the architecture, that uh, there isn't some code that already does what they've done that they could have just reused. You know, all that kind of stuff is the job of a mentor. And you have to do it in a way that, you know, isn't um, kind of squashing that person's um, notion of contribution, right? Like if, if you... If they put something in and they're kind of happy with it, you have to kind of gently ask questions like, did you consider this? Or, hey, have you seen this part? Oh, you know, your code reminds me. I totally forgot there's this piece over here that we could reuse. Did you look at that? Right. And kind of think of the human side of the equation. You have a person there who's doing their best and you want to keep them doing their best. And, uh, you know, be gentle. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's the men- the job of the mentor to have kind of that bigger picture in mind and and uh, be able to get that picture across to the person they're mentoring. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's turn this around and say you're you're the new person, uh, maybe not not directly from college or university, but maybe you have a few years experience. But there's this wise, experienced person um, well-known possibly even with uh, lots of experience um, and they're really smart but they're also completely disillusioned and and stubborn in their own ways how do you go about changing uh, a person's mind if they're like that yeah that's a that's a good question uh i remember once when i was a very young developer at apollo um I was working on a, a boot ROM for some system. So you had to like, you had your code and you had to like burn that onto a double EEPROM and then you'd plug it in and hope that it booted the system. And if it didn't, well, back to the drawing board and figure it out. And uh, because of my kind of lack of, um, I guess, formal software training or whatever, I was kind of struck one day by this notion of that thing that burned the prom, you know, this machine, you'd, you'd load your code into it and it would write it all into the, the ROM. And I was like, I wonder how this actually works inside. And I asked somebody and they said, oh, you should go ask this, this one particular kind of senior developer. And uh, I remember that guy had, they all had offices back then with the doors and everything. This guy had had like several bookcases uh, arranged around the door of his office. So once you went in the door, you had to navigate through this maze of bookcases to even find the guy. That was a signal. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't bother me. But being young and naive, I navigated through and asked, hey, how does this thing work? And 
Oh, you could also smoke in your offices back then. And he was smoking the cigarette and he actually just stopped. He's staring at his screen, stopped and turned and looked at me and like, just told me to get the hell out of his office. <laughs> like didn't ever answer the question. Don't be like that. You know, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> if you're, if you're the kind of person that you described in your question, at least don't take it that far. Um, yeah, I never did get the answer to that question, but I'd say the thing about um, when you have experienced people, you do have to respect the fact that they they know things. They didn't get to where they are by not knowing things. They have strengths, and you kind of have to figure out what those strengths are and start to pick up on the things that are important to them. Why are those things important? Um, I think if you were to ask somebody I've noticed that you prefer this way of doing this particular thing. Why is that? You know, is there something hidden in there? Is it just based on experience that that works out best? You know, what are the alternatives? Why aren't they as good? Um, most people will tend to sit back and say, well, here's why. And you gain some insight into their thinking. And uh, I think you can then, you know, start Almost, it's almost like you're, you're joining their team, right? That you start to see why they do certain things a certain way. And if you're kind of um, showing them that you understand why things are the way they are, once you have that understanding and they see that you have it, it's a lot easier to change their mind about things because then they know that you have studied the system, you know it's why it's done the way it is, but here's some alternatives that you think they might want to look at. Uh, the alternative, of course, is to kind of charge in and say, well, that's that's the past, here's the future, here's why this has to be done, and you're sort of setting yourself up for this battle that you probably don't want. Um, so it's just better, I'd say, to take time and at least get to understand the system and the person or people behind it, why they do certain things a certain way. And you'll have a better time influencing that system afterwards. Mm -hmm. Okay. One of the things that you did um, throughout your career, I think was to write a lot of papers and magazine articles and um, do a lot of conference presentations mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how many, did you keep track of how many of those you did actually? No, um, in terms, it must have been in terms of articles. I know there were over a hundred, yeah. not, not greatly over a hundred, but over a hundred, um, conference presentations, I would say hundreds. Mm -hmm. So is that something that you recommend doing and would you advise people to consider doing that or under what circumstances would you? suggest that people do that uh hmm, that's a tough one as well i think the reason i got into it was because of you know i mentioned early on in this podcast the notion of being curious and looking for approaches that might solve problems you're working on reading papers i was doing that i was reading books i was reading papers and uh kind of voraciously, you know, just absorbing and absorbing. And 
the some of the authors of those papers I contacted and I would get to know them. And they were the ones who started encouraging me to uh, publish my own articles or write my own books or whatever it was. And um, it's not an easy thing to do or, or give conference talks or whatever. It's not a, it's certainly not an easy thing to do because it takes quite a bit of time. Um, I was lucky in that I had, uh, you know, my wife was very supportive of my work, even if it meant kind of spending night times working on papers or books or whatever, or traveling to conferences. Um, my employers generally were supportive of that as well, taking time off to go give a talk. Um, so I understand that some people don't necessarily have that opportunity, um, and that makes it difficult. So that's something you have to be aware of is that it's going to impact your work and your personal life. And, um, if, if you're lucky enough to have a system around you that does support it, then I definitely recommend it. Um, it's going to open your eyes to a lot of things, a lot of work of other people. Um, it's going to kind of make you think about things that you thought were just kind of hard truths all of a sudden are revealed not to be <laughs> uh, when you see some of the work of other people or even, you know, you get like a question um, at a talk, you know, someone asks a question about the talk you just gave and you might think, oh, that's interesting and go off and kind of research their question and find like this whole door opens to another world that you were unaware of. So if you're that curious type of person and you do have that support system that allows you to do this, then publishing and, and speaking are definitely good things to do. Okay. So did we cover most of what we wanted to cover? Is there something that you want to add a piece of advice for the young engineer? Yeah, there's, I kind of hinted at it earlier, but, don't don't wrap yourself up emotionally in what you're working on. It's not always the easiest thing to do. You do, you know, once you spend a lot of time on something, it becomes like a, you know, it's it's your work and you want to protect it. But, you know, everything we do changes so much, changes so rapidly that you just can't get attached. There's business behind this. You know, it's not just a pure coding exercise. Most of the time there's business uh, choices that have to be made. And sometimes they are made in a way that isn't favorable to your technical choices. So try to avoid uh, not only emotionally wrapping yourself up with what you work on, but don't be that technology. You know, um, for a while, I was the Corba guy, then I became the rest guy, then I was the Erlang guy, and then I don't know what I am now, just the old guy, I think. Uh, but, you know, that's good that, you know, if you become that sort of person where you're identified with a particular technology, that's fine. But don't just hang out there forever. Reinvent yourself. Look at the alternatives and say, you know, we did that work. It was good for what it was, but here's a different way now. And kind of don't be afraid to take that next step. Very good. Okay. So 
um, Steve, thanks for for all the for all the advice and all the wise words. I really really enjoyed the conversation. Um, we'll put in a bunch of links into the show notes to your other work. Is there anything that we should add related to mentoring? Any book you can recommend or resource you can recommend on this particular topic? Um. Oh, not really. I mean, um, I don't tend to look to books for the mentoring side of things. I think it's just more, you know, the feel that I have for having done this for so long and what people need to know and, and that sort of thing. I, I do recommend that developers become familiar with, uh, the innovators dilemma and, not just the word disruption because that's overused now, but the actual science behind it. And, uh, you know, it, it will help you see things in a way that helps you helps guide what you do on a daily basis. So there's that, but, um, just in terms of mentoring, I think it, you know, don't forget it's, it's people, you know, it, it comes down to people. You're on a team, you're working with people, you, have to be uh, someone who people want to work with and you know conduct yourself in a way that that would uh, make you somebody that people do want to help and and be around um, the only other thing I would uh, want to say is if people want you know hear this podcast and they have questions or whatever they can certainly email me my address is my last name at IEEE org email me and i'm sure to answer you excellent okay thanks again steve Thank for you. the very inspiring conversation thanks for having me